This is Savio. I've been seeking answers to some of life's most perplexing questions my entire life. In 2014, I was diagnosed with stage three cancer. And ever since, I realized my calling existed outside of what I knew to be familiar. This podcast is your home for survivors like myself and those who are searching to find meaning to their why. In season two, the show includes a mix of coaching sessions followed immediately by interviews with those from all walks of life who have been successful in the business, marketing, coaching, and financial worlds. The intent is to show the human experience in its rawest form so that others may glean insight. Nothing is rehearsed or has been edited. As a board-certified wellness coach, my job is to ask the deep questions of those trying to make sense of their place in this fractured world. I believe life speaks to us in different ways. Many of us listen, but don't know how or where to begin. As someone who has crossed the bridge between life and death, I say simply, begin where you are now and get busy living. If you liked today's episode, I would appreciate it if you could share it and subscribe. Be sure to tag me at The Human Resolve so I can reciprocate in kind. So without further ado, welcome to The Human Resolve Podcast. James McGonagall has built several businesses from scratch and prides himself on his Mensa status. An overachiever by nature, he lives by the adage, the first to practice, the last to leave. But he soon discovers that life has other plans, doing the things that will truly matter in the end. Hi, Jim. It's good to see you. Same here. Good. Thank you for the invitation. Sure. So what would you like coaching on today? Self-confidence. Um, to me, that's the core, really, of success happiness and what have you if uh, if you're fortunate enough to have that instilled especially in growing up years life's a lot easier so what i just heard you said is self-confidence you want to focus on that aspect yes yeah, yeah. so what would be a, a great outcome for today's conversation if uh, one of your listeners um hated some questions about that we discuss and maybe cause them to um, to give some thought to maybe uh, uh, I'm not here with answers but I think the best way to to um, help people is to raise questions uh, I think once a person starts questioning then you begin to you know th then they take over control a, a person can only change themselves there's self-confidence is an internal event not external and therefore external Im impact does not external event does not really impact it maybe superficially so it has to come from within so that to me is uh, that, that's that's a key point in this whole uh this whole topic really great so you want to your outcome is really about imparting some knowledge onto someone else based upon our conversation today yeah we're maybe the thing that I've found in one, since I did this uh, free audio book is that uh, there seems to at least one chapter seems to hit home with everybody that has listened. Uh, it deals with rejection. It deals with things that everybody deals with. The only difference with all of us is how we handle things. The things are pretty much the same. There's some variations, of course, but the experience in life 
is pretty much standardized. It's just like I said, it's how everybody, it's the variety of responses. And the more positive your response can be. Certainly, um, I'm, I'm a big advocate of people avoiding that, what I would call the victim uh, mentality. And I think that oftentimes goes hand in hand with a lack of self-confidence. But the dangerous part of a victim mentality is that if you continually blame others, there is absolutely no incentive to learn from it and get better. So it's kind of like you're going to live life running in place. You speak of this victim mentality. Has that ever shown up in your life? Well, I guess the closest I came to it, well, first of all, not really, only because um, the, to me, the, the primary role of parents uh, between the ages of seven and 12, in my opinion, can be summed up in one word, and that's reinforcement, encouragement more so. Um, I say seven and 12 because at seven, most seven-year-olds can pretty much handle, take care of themselves. And 12 year old because they haven't been, they haven't dealt with the distractions of teenage life, high school and what have you. And they're, that age, that age spread seems to be the most receptive to guidance from parents. And uh, that to me, um, to me there are three, if you'd like, I will I'll give you what I believe to be the, the three, the essence of self-confidence um, number one is uh, whether it's easier if a person attains this basis from parents growing up. That's what happened to me. Um, it enables you kind of to start life on second base and you build on that. Uh, unfortunately, there are many people that find themselves having to do this on their own, kind of like self-motivating can still be done, but it is much more difficult. But to me, of the three fundamental elements of self-confidence, number one is people need to have their receivers turned on. Um, by that, I mean, we learn from what we hear, not from what we say. And knowledge really is power. When, when you have, when you've done your homework and whatever it may be, whether it be researching a project, a person, a situation, doesn't really matter. But when you go into a situation knowing the topic, that's very helpful in building self-confidence. A person needs to be generous. I believe, the, speaking for myself, the best I've ever felt about myself uh, is when I've reached out to help somebody else. Uh, whether it be monetarily or with time, with effort, with attention, um, that that brings home the point that there are people, shall we say, less fortunate than yourself. So that is a a, a, a pillar of self confidence when you can when you can do that because if the less time you're thinking about yourself, believe in my opinion, that's one of the best ways to build self confidence because. You reach out to others, and it, it like I said, self-confidence really is liking yourself. <laughs> and if you don't like yourself, 
who in the world from the outside can you expect to like you? And the so third Jim, thing, yes. No, I was just going to ask you, like, so when, when you think of or you feel the sense of self-confidence, does that hit you anywhere in your body? Mm, no. Well, I was, it's really a thought process. Uh, an example I give you is a person who lacks self-confidence. They have an idea. We all have ideas. We get excited about the idea we have. But people that lack self-confidence, then this thing creeps in this thought that, well, it was my idea, so how good can it be? So you talk yourself out of an idea that started out exciting you. Or another example of the same, same kind of mindset is you have an idea, you're excited about it, and then you start to say, well, wait a minute, if it was this good, why didn't somebody else have it? And the result's the same. You talk yourself out of it. And that, to me, failure, I've never seen things as a failure. When something didn't work out in my life, I looked at it very simply as it wasn't meant to be. If, if you've given the best shot you can, excuse me, <coughs> there's nothing more. And it's okay. There's, I've had things that I thought, you know, were going to work. It didn't. It turned out when I look back, it, was, it meant there was something better coming. But the last thing and the most important thing and really the message in my book and all, uh, the, most, the key element, not only to self-confidence, but to happiness in life is a sense of appreciation. If you don't have that, you... Um, your life is just always going to be things that you didn't get, you don't have. It's it, you live in that half-empty world, and uh, people that appreciate it's not. It has nothing really to do with how much you have. Some of the most appreciative people I've ever met in my life materially had very little, but they were happy with what they had. Uh, to me. That is, a person that appreciates, they already uh, well on their way to having a happy and a successful life. And success, as I look at it, is not a monetary event, although it certainly, I think that's the benchmark people have. But it's really about how you feel about yourself. And if you appreciate what you have, you've already answered the question, is how do you feel about yourself? You're happy with yourself. <laughs> It's not that complicated. Yeah. So how does appreciation happiness fall into your life? Well, I realized growing up, um, having parents that uh, I I actually, you know, uh, you take for granted because you don't know anybody. You assume when you're young that everybody's parents are like yours. You have no, you have no reference point. Uh, and it was later on, it actually happened one night at a, at a basketball game, believe it or not. Uh, I was 16, roughly. I played on, a, on an all-black basketball team in West Philadelphia. We were at a championship game at Memorial Hall, and my dad went to every practice. We sat in the stands. One night, it was this particular championship game was snowing. Not, not a lot, but, you know, after the layup drill, the buzzer goes and the game usually starts within two or three minutes. I'll never forget, we had a six foot eight, 240-pound center named Stanley Singletary. And the, the ref came over and said, listen, we're going to start the game now. And I'll never forget, he turned to me and said, to the ref, he said, we can't start until Mr. Mack gets here. 
And I thought to myself, I, I was confused by that. And all of a sudden, just right then, my dad came in. Anyway, the, we, the game went on. We won the game. After the game, I went up to Stanley. I said, Stanley, I don't understand. I said, uh, why, why would you, you? I've never even seen you and my dad talk. Why, why would you, you know, make a stand that we, you know, weren't going to start until Mr. Mack got here? He looked at me and he said, Mr. Mack is the only constant in my life. I got it. I got the message. I never looked at that again uh, as, you know, entitlement. I realized uh, how important, how lucky I was and uh, tried to remind myself over the years. But that was the single, I would say, most memorable point that and I was at 16 realizing that that was cool, cool experience. And I'm happy it happened to me early in life and not later on. So it really, it, uh, timing is, is cool. So besides your dad, who else were your role models in this realm of self-confidence? Well, uh, I really, I can't really pinpoint anyone else because I pretty much uh, through high school, I mean, through college and graduate school, I worked. And then I basically, I got an outside job, outside sales job. I was on my own. And then I started my own business. I pretty much have never had a boss. So, um, and, and really, I don't think, I think the mentor is far more important if you don't get that self-confidence instilled in those early years. Then somebody else needs to step in, a coach, a teacher. I didn't need that, so I wasn't looking for that. That's the only way I can answer that question. You know, I'm sure they were there. There was many, many people have helped me along the way. But more as friends, as peers, than as mentors, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. So how did your dad exemplify self-confidence? He loved what he did, and he was very good at it. He was the head machinist at the Bulletin. Um, he just enjoyed what he did. And when he got promoted to foreman, he still got up at four in the morning. I said, why are you doing that? He said, I, I just, I like, the, I like what I'm doing. He liked fixing things. And if you're lucky enough in this world to find something that you like doing, and I think a lot of people sell out sell out to money, to perks, or what have you, uh, when they look back on their life, and I've always felt regret is hell. So the more you enjoy something, the better at it you are. Michael Jordan's a classic example. MVP, first to practice, last to leave. That's it. It never changed his routine. And I think that if you really like something, then it's not a job. You, you wake up in the morning and, and that's with my dad. He woke up and he was good to go. I, I couldn't lift that while <laughs> getting up at four to, to go and fix machines is not was not on my top thousand things to do. But I think everybody's different, but certainly the ability to, you know, regret. I, I want to just touch a little, a, a little bit on that. And that is um, Steve Jobs. You could arguably make a case that he impacted the Earth's population more than any other single individual. I mean, he changed the way we communicate. His last correspondence 
on this earth, his priorities were not in line. Now, if a person like that, that had everything on the planet, died regretting, I mean, that's a message that for all of us to revisit our priorities. Are we, are we really doing what matters in the end? Obviously, he didn't feel that he did. <laughs> I wish that that letter had more exposure because it's certainly coming from someone like him who had achieved everything materially a human being could ever imagine. And it just wasn't enough. So, Jim, is what you're doing enough right now? Well, when I left my last company uh, about 15 years ago, I went on a quest to find to find something to reciprocate for this. For I lived the American dream, and my family enjoyed the, the fruits of that American dream. And uh, about 12 years ago, by accident, I wound up at Walter Reed Hospital with a friend of mine. Just. Uh, who was doing buffets for them twice a year. And anyway, I it changed my life because I met somebody who ran this program. And at that time, I was asked by a friend of mine to do, uh, do some due diligence on a little company and see if they were a candidate to go public. That was what I, that was my career, bringing small company, companies public and then finding a large company or a, an exciting technology to merge with. And then the stock reacted accordingly. But anyway, um, this company that I was asked to look at had this free anonymous discount prescription card, which I'm sure you've gotten them in the mail. Everybody gets them. They've been around 30 years. Anyway, uh, whenever I hear the word free, I figured it's free until I find out what's not free. Uh, my area of expertise has been due diligence because I've only done self-underwritten deals, which means I never use a broker's firm. So you better be very good at due diligence if you're going to pursue that method of bringing a company public. Well, um, I spent this day at Walter Reed and five minutes outside there, this friend of mine said, Jimmy, you're never going to be the same after the day. I figure I'm, I'm going to see things, bad things, uh, soldiers that are wounded and what have you, and that that would never forget that. He was 100% right, but for 100% the opposite reason. I actually never spent a more upbeat, optimistic eight hours in my life. Um, these people um, had every reason in the world to complain. They were upbeat. They asked me about what I did. We talked about their families. And I got to meet a gentleman by the name of Peter Anderson who ran this Malone house. To give you some idea, the Malone house housed the 400 most severely wounded soldiers. The average stay there at Savio was two years. That's it. Anyway, I left there. He gave me a coin. He says, you know, I think you're going to help the soldiers. And I, I, I've never been, a, you know, a, a believer in, uh, you know, rabbit's feet or anything like that. But I've never, I've never left. That coin's been with me ever since. Um, and what I did is I took this idea that this company I was looking at for the free anonymous discount prescription card. And I decided I would, that would be a great vehicle to raise money for charity. It never was done before, and I'm not even sure it's ever even since been done. I don't understand why, but we we hooked up with the Walter Reed Society, 
And then later on, with, because my daughters and my wife and my mother-in-law said, well, why don't we do something for the girls? Then we partnered with the Breast Cancer Research Foundation in Manhattan. And in the last 11 years, with just my daughter and my wife, we have contributed. We've never taken a donation. We've contributed almost $1 million, 600,000 of the soldiers and over 300,000 to breast cancer. And the thing we're proudest of with this free anonymous card, we have saved people in the pharmacies over $40 million. And the card's free and anonymous. We're proud of that program. And then since in the last couple of years, uh, we've morphed into a kind of a more specific target, and that is Operation Key West. And my two partners there are the two former Surgeon Generals of the Army and the Navy. And we have fully focused on military families that have lost a child to cancer or have a child now that is dealing with cancer. It has been the most rewarding two years of my life. Talking about appreciative, appreciate military couples, military families, they still, they, I've never sensed any feeling of entitlement, which you, which you find just about every time you leave your house every day. And it's been great. Uh, what we found out is that it's never been done before. And that blew me away. But having these two former Surgeon Generals, right now we're planning on taking the program nationally. It is amazing how many children of military parents are suffering. And it's that, the difference here, and I'll just wind this up on my end at least, with any more, unless we have more questions, is that when a child dies of a military parents, when a civilian family loses a child, which is the worst event in the history of any family's experience, you have the support of family, friends in the area and your, your spouse. In a military situation, the spouse is almost always, one spouse is almost always deployed and the hospital they're staying at is not in their hometown. So they're on their own. And, and I found that the hospital staff, I work with the Portsmouth Naval Hospital, and we, I found in talking to parents of children that passed and they're sick, is the hospital staff become the surrogate parents. It's, it's one thing to deal with this, with support, but imagine being a mother, the husband being deployed somewhere, having to deal with this. And then when it's over, as the Admiral has stated, and it's on our website, when the child passes, the, ch the parents are forgotten. They're abandoned. That's the word he used. And he's a lifetime pediatric oncologist. So we're doing something positive. It's a good thing. Yeah. And there's no better way to boost one's self-confidence. As I said at the very beginning, if you feel good about yourself, you're, on, you're well on your way. It's really not about the things that people a lot of times associate with self-confidence, and that is like success. If that was the case, there'd be a lot fewer successful people measured by dollars in therapy, suicidal, on drugs. I mean, obviously, it must be something more than material, or they wouldn't be reaching out to these, they wouldn't be dealing with these, with these situations that you would normally associate with people that don't have enough to eat or a place to live or what have you. Not the case. Anyway, that's my story. Yeah. So, so Jim, on your quest for more self-confidence and feeling enough, what do you think those experiences taught you? 
Well, I think the key thing to come away with, if things don't work out as you thought they should, um, that really, I look at that as an opportunity. Because the word experience, really, you get experience not from what you do right. What you do right is a result of your experience. You're not adding to that. What doesn't work out is is an opportunity to increase your level of experience, both the quantity and the quality. And I think people need to look at, at what they consider to be some people failure. It's not a failure, only if it dictates to you the fact that you're a victim, you're, you know, you're not smart enough, you're not whatever. Once you start that routine, you, you sell yourself on that. Uh, that to me, I think, is a key message is using setbacks constructively instead of destructively. So, Jim, how can we inch yourself closer to, to gaining more self-confidence? You, you mentioned a lot about helping other people and doing for them. And I'm just curious for you, how do we, how do we get you closer? Well, the, the, the path I just described to you with this Operation Key West is really like the path on steroids in a way. Because there's no time. I mean, when you see these fam, when you see somebody hurting, there's no time to, to wallow in your own mess. And really, there's only, uh, there's only so many hours in a day. And if you look at it mathematically, there's 24 hours. The more time you spend in a positive way, the mathematics, you, you just have less time to spend in a negative way. That's just, that's not my opinion. That's, that's simple math. So, I mean, to me, it's that there's no magic formula. It's just that everybody has to seek, you know, what, but I go back to, you know, knowledge is power. Study, get, be prepared when you, when you engage in a situation, because if you're prepared and it doesn't work out, then you, you're developing a constructive mindset. Well, why didn't it work out? And don't immediately say it was me. That is, that's got to be avoided. If something doesn't work out, the first thing a person should think of, why? And it, if it turns out that I wasn't prepared, well, guess what? It was me. But it's a constructive me. It, it leads me to do something better the next time. Again, I go back to the word experience. And experience is, a, is really a string of failures in a way. And you get better at it. And then one day you, you say, hmm, that worked out because I didn't make the same mistake I made three, three mistakes ago. And there you are. And so how have you handled the mistakes? I've never dwelled on them. As I said, to me, it wasn't a failure. It wasn't meant to be. If I brought my A game and my A game wasn't good enough, that's it. That, that's what people, if you don't bring your A game, then you're leaving yourself open for regret. Because we all really know in our hearts when we did good, we can fool the world, but we know. We know when we know. So if, if a person knows, so if kidding yourself, perhaps is that you really are, you're kidding a fool then. Instead of just, you know, saying, you know, like I say, 
look at it objectively. Why why didn't they do one of the things that I think a lot of people would be much more I did spend my career in mergers and acquisitions. So with a lot of negotiating, one of the first things I always did is instead of coming to the table with what I wanted, I positioned myself as the person I'm negotiating with. I wanted to I took I went into his mindset. I tried to figure out what would what does he want from me? Why is he here? And that gave me, I did that a lot. And it's like I got better at it. And I, I, got, I know I got better at it because when things went the way I was hoping they were, I, I was trying to put post, both pieces together before they even came together. A lot of people are so, you know, so busy wanting to close a deal or wanting to, well, there's two people. It's like when you hear these people talk about trading a certain ball player for, a, you know, the other team is not stupid. You know, they're not going to give you a lot of times a fan, myself included, would like, you know, want to trade somebody for somebody a lot better. But I forget there's a, there's another team with another agenda, you know, and it, none of this, Savio, is brain surgery. None of this costs money. It really just about people looking into themselves and determining that they're going to be better. Because if they're being better, it kind of makes everybody around them better. Like in sports, some the best players are the ones that make the, their teammates better. Same thing in life. I don't, it's not really so many sports metaphors in life, it's not even funny. So Jim, what's left? what's more left for you to do right now? Well, I want to take this program that we're on nationally. I want my goal here is for every military family in America that has a, have lost a child or that is dealing with a seriously ill child or is dealing with a chronically ill. We've taken them on vacation anywhere they want to go to, to because a lot of times marriages are under assault when a child dies. Uh, and in the military, it's worse because there's other distractions that they cannot avoid their orders. So that would be the coolest thing if we could say that any military family that found themselves in one of those three positions, our program could help them in some way. We just had a boy, he just died last week at 21 and uh, his girlfriend uh, was the most loyal um, visitor that this hospital at Portsmouth had ever seen. So our little program decided we were going to buy him a gift to give her. So we bought a pair of diamond stud earrings and it took four days for the staff. She had long hair and they, they were trying to find out if she had holes in her ears. So we finally won that battle. And uh, the smile on his face when he gave them to her I'll never forget. And he died four or five days later. That's cool. So how can you keep yourself accountable to, like you said, taking this national? Well, I'm used to building companies from scratch. So I'm not doing anything really any different. Um, I, I, think, I think enthusiasm and confidence are the two most easily identifiable human traits. I'm fortunate enough that I possess those two components because I rarely get involved in anything. I've, I did five deals in 30 years, but when I do, I'm in. And uh, I have had 
been fortunate to have success and a track record when you're talking to anybody is omnipotent. And my track record was made in the public sector. So it's not like he said, she said, I make up stories and uh, it's all public. And I'm sure you'll agree with this, that most people, when you meet them, they, they come with their best foot forward, uh, understandably. But when you start to drill down as to who they are and what they've done versus what you have been told they have done and who they are, very, very rarely when you drill down, are you surprised with a positive? Very rarely. And, and you know, that's, I think the, the more uh, aggressive a person is, uh, the truth is really, it's become almost a luxury. And that is, you know, that's why this self-confidence, in my opinion, self-confidence, the real enemy is fear. And in this last year and a half, two years with the pandemic, we've had enough fear to last a lifetime. Fear of losing our health, our wealth, our job. You know, I mean, no wonder there is, you know, so much, so many people distraught. And... Uh, that is not a good environment for somebody, you know, who is lacking self-confidence to begin with. Uh, but, what, you know, all people that have it can do, in my opinion, like I said, at the very beginning is reach out and help people. There's no better way to boost your own morale than that. And if, if it was good enough for Steve Jobs to regret, he didn't do that. It's good enough for me. So, Jim, we spoke a lot about sort of this issue of self-confidence and, you know, having the tools necessary in order to, you know, foster that. What, how does this all shake up for you? Um, well, I, I'm not sure I understand the question, but if you're doing like a, this podcast with you, uh, any way that I can get this message out, the reason I did a, a free audio book is free because I wanted to access people un, in underserved areas. And I did an audio versus a video because an audio is like you and me talking in a bar. A video reminds me of a motivational speaker talking to an audience. If you have a thousand people and you have some advice, well, every one of those thousand people are going to absorb it in a different way. And uh, that's what I, you know, I hope that my experience uh, my outlook uh, makes people think, you know, maybe I'll try this work for this person. You know, maybe maybe that maybe it makes some sense. It's free. I mean, and it it's not like you have to go to school. It, it's maybe it's like hiding kind of in plain sight. Because we, we all we all, for example, if things are free, we question what their value is. I find I resent that because I, I, what I don't understand is why somebody who's made millions needs to be paid or needs to sell a book to incentivize other people to help them. I mean, to me, if somebody is successful, why not share it? So I, I don't buy that thing about, well, you know, if it's free, what, how good can it be? Yeah. I, I, I'm not into that. Yeah. No. So I, I think this is a great um, sort of point to transition into the interview. So tell my audience more about James McGonagall and, and you know, all your successes. 
Well, um, the successes were kind of timing. Um, when I got into the uh, to the to the stock market, I was young. My dad called me on the first deal it was good way printing and he said he saw the future of printing and he wanted to know if it was a public company i looked it up it was i took the uh, 1400 that i had of uh, wedding funds <laughs> gifts bought 200 shares a year later sold it at 40 dollars um then you know i had a couple of these and and then i got involved uh, uh in, a, in a company in utah it was a penny and um I was in it six years, and one day I got a call from the from the CEO who was the head of geology at the University of Utah, and he asked me, you know, I'm a young guy at Sun Oil and outside sales, and he asked me if I'd be interested in becoming a director. And I, anyway, because he had mining people as partners, I said, fine. I didn't know what I was getting into, but I figured in six years I can't do any worse. And I had a, a somewhat of a business background. So uh, a year after that, we did a $100 million deal with Martin Marietta. They built a cement plant on our property in Leamington, Utah. Wow. Stock went from a penny to a dollar, and it was a lot of fun. And then, the, but I'll go back to something in, in youth, um, talking about sports. I played basketball, as I mentioned. And one of the things that that taught me is that I, I became hooked on the camaraderie that followed winning. It was, it was the really fun part was the interaction with your teammates. And it really followed me into my career because I chose a career where I would start companies. I did self-underwritten deals, so I would have my own uh, following of people, starting with my mother. So they were the investors. So when I won, they all won. And, <laughs> and then it followed me to a maybe not so good place. Uh, I became addicted to the dice table. And I know in my heart of hearts that if that dice table only housed one person playing at a time, I would have never, never gotten interested in it. <laughs> but I, I just, the, the excitement uh, of, of a hot roll. So I, I bring this up because there's a, there really is a connection of growing up of, of your experiences and, and how they manifest itself later on. But that's a classic example. My basketball experience led to my career, which led to, or tried to lead to my downfall, but I survived it. How, you know, you mentioned your addiction a little bit was the role. Was How did self-confidence play into that? <laughs> it had nothing to do with it. Although, I guess, in a way, I thought maybe I could outsmart them. Ah. Yeah, and I learned. That was an extensive lesson. So, yes. Yeah. So and I see I behind no you, I see behind you, you have a plaque that says, no place, common sense. Tell no me, place for common sense, yeah. No place for common sense. Give me, give me more context around that. Well, during the pandemic last year, a friend of mine uh, suggested, he said, listen, why don't you take this downtime and, um, and you know, do a podcast. I, and I actually started doing a podcast because I've never had the patience to do a book. And then... Uh, it was, I got good feedback and I said, well, let me do a book, a beginning, a middle and an end. And uh, it was the most cathartic thing I ever have ever done because it allowed me to remember people, places and things that I probably would have never remembered. 
So it was really, really, like I said, cathartic. And, uh, and I've got some very positive feedback on it. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that um, everybody can identify with a chapter. It took me 20 years, but I, you know, I never forgot it. And I went back to the same person at Merrill Lynch and put down a copy of the Business Week and U.S. News and World Report, which my little company was actually mentioned in because it was the number one performing stock in America in 1985. I mean, again, it's how you handle rejection. I just, I, I was devastated. And, you know, I really wanted to be. But, you know, and I think that every, we all, we all are rejected part of life. So that's what I mean about, you know, if, if, if people can see, you know, how one person deals with it in a, in, a, in a constructive way, maybe that'll give them an idea. So what were some of your um, coping mechanisms during the pandemic? Well, I have always been physically active and I've always, I've been a big fan of the Greek philosophy of mind and body. So I walked and walked. I walked 10 to 15 miles a day. And um, awesome. that's really how I kept myself going. Um, it, it wasn't, you know, it, it was it was trying for everybody, you know, uh, and that's why the book came along at the perfect time, because I know if there was no pandemic, I would have never done that. So I, I would like to think that something constructive in my own life came from that. And um that to me, you know, that's trying to make the best out of the situation is that I think that applies to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's some, how I did it. So what would be some life lessons that you could give for someone who, you know, wants to start with an idea or a business? Well, something that you have a real interest in. Uh, if you if you do that, where it's kind of like a hobby that becomes a business, your chances of being successful are increased in that arena. Um, the other thing I would suggest is that you uh, you 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 treat if it's a business you treat customers. People want to do business with people they like. Uh, this technology era has replaced people with, with, with analog things and what have you. And it really, it's, I don't think things have changed very much in that regard. And I, and I go back to, you know, being prepared if you know the customer and, you know, and it, it, friendship in business, I've always been a big fan of that because relationships are really the most important asset you acquire in your lifetime. Because that gives you the memory, and that's one of the things I learned doing this book. That that I, I I knew some cool people, and had some fun, more fun than I ever dreamed that I had. Because I was having it. You don't know when you're having it until yeah, you look yeah. back. But um, I, I just being prepared. If you you know you're going to go into business, you know be prepared. I mean, know what you're doing. And, and make sure that, that there is a market for what you want and not something just because you want it that everybody does. But there's really no, that, that's a very subjective question because it's really, a lot, a lot has to do with a person's own personality. 
You know, I mean, if you can adapt a business, outgoing per people, sales are great. You know, uh, people that are more pensive, you know, maybe a career like in research or teaching or something like that. So it, it, you try to if you try to you try to use as much of your of your assets uh, going into a venture that you see would be beneficial to that particular venture. But certainly being prepared is a universal statement. That's, it doesn't matter whether you're funny, stupid, or whatever. If you're not prepared, chances are you're going to, you know, you're going to fail. And you're, when I say fail, you're, you're going to lose your investment. You may actually learn a lot and may prepare you for a much better opportunity. Is there a motto or a quote that you live by? I, this was attributed to Ethel Kennedy, and I find this to be very cool. Supposedly, she said, the more one has, the more that is expected. Mm. I like that. Yeah. I, I think that is a very appropriate quote. Yeah. So those of my listeners who are inspired by you, where can they find you on the Internet? Well, I'm at um, certainly no place for common sense. Jimmy at no place for common sense. And my, my email address is Jimmy Mack, J-I-M-M-Y-M-A-C, 0219 at AOL. And uh, we have one other website, and that is OperationKeyWest.org. And my background and the, and the two Surgeon General's background were all on there. Awesome. And also, you know, the people that we're, we were interacted with that I mentioned to you. This Wonderful. has been a great opportunity. Great well, opportunity. I, I love thank it. Thank you so much, Jimmy. I really appreciate your time. Thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Hi there. I really hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast episode of The Human Resolve. If you feel that others may enjoy this episode as well, please share socially at The Human Resolve. They can also visit my website, thehumanresolve.com, where I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, daily prompts to move in the right direction, sync directly to your smartphone, and a subscription to my weekly newsletter where I probe into the secrets from living smarter to feeding your three brains. If you could also help me out and give me a review and rating on this platform, because I do care what you have to say, I would really appreciate it. Now, get out there, my friends, and get busy living.